All right, we're live. So uh, thank you for doing this. Should I address you as Dr. Nicole Tatman? Oh, I don't think so. Or no, Dr. Just Tatman? Nicole. Just Nicole. Nicole? Okay, yeah. awesome. But you you have your PhD. Yes. Yeah. And so um, thank you so much. This took a while for us to get this uh, scheduled because uh, you're super busy. And um, so I appreciate your time today. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do? you know, who you work for and, and, uh, and yeah. anything else that's interesting. Yeah. So I work for New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. I'm the big game program manager. And so my role is to oversee sort of the biology side of setting licenses, assessing populations for ungulates. So those are hoofed mammals, right? And so mm-hmm. that's everything from you know, reaching out to the public and talking to the public about what they would like to see as far as hunting goes to actually going and flying surveys across the state to assess populations and seeing how they're doing, um, determining if what we're doing hunting wise actually works with the population, right? Making sure that what we're doing is sustainable. So Mm -hmm. I guess my role is to oversee that, um, with a big team of people and biologists and, um, yeah, just keep tabs on, the wild ungulates that we all love to go pursue and see in the wild. Awesome. Awesome. That's a big job. It sounds like you kind of run the gamut on a lot of stuff from being up in a helicopter and tagging and uh, doing, you know, you know, a lot of probably statistics and research that way. Yeah. Um, when I talked to you on the phone, uh, you told me something really interesting in that you got your P- PhD in elk, kind of like an elk study type of thing? What, what was your PhD in? Yeah. So the, my doctorate was looking at elk calf survival in the Via Vidal. And so that's, um, the Northern part of the state close to the Colorado border. It's a really special place for hunters in particular in New Mexico. It's the state's only once in a lifetime draw for elk. Mm. And, um, in the years leading up to the start of the study, we were seeing low elk calf survival. And so when we do our fall surveys, we count um, the number of adult females, bulls, and calves that we see. And so we get a calf-to-cow ratio. And we were seeing that trend down, which indicates to us that the population is struggling for some reason. And um, the study was initiated to determine why that population was struggling. So um, we decided we would go tag elk calves. And so we essentially set up on a high spot in the summer when elk give birth and we use optics to find cows that had just given birth and then we go tag their calves. Mm. And then we follow those calves. Um, we monitor them using uh, VHF or, or like radio telemetry, right? Mm. So they have an ear tag that has a motion sensor in it. Once that motion sensor stops moving, that animal's most likely dead. And so this is what, this is, kind of a common thing biologists do to assess how these young animals are surviving or what is killing them. Mm. And so once we know that one is dead, we go out and determine the cause of death. So usually, you know, we do a field necropsy, um, look for like subcutaneous hemorrhaging under the skin, any consumption patterns that certain predators, you know, might commonly use, like black bears will peel back skin on animals. And so that's a that's a pretty common thing that we see with bear mortality. And so the idea of the study was to determine what was limiting this particular elk population and why calves weren't surviving. And so we put out, you know, hundreds of these transmitters to monitor these elk calves. Um, in the first couple of years, years of the study, we determined that 
it was black bear predation that was limiting, like those calves were not surviving to, you know, even a few months of age Mm. because black bears were preying on them more heavily than in other places, we'll say. Um, And the, the second two years of the study, we decided, well, we'll look into increasing black bear harvest and see if that actually can improve elk calf survival. And it turns out that it did. Um, but another piece of, of the puzzle here is if this is the only, so, so elk populations can be limited by top, let's say top down or bottom up things. And so what that means is like a top down thing is like predation. So predators are killing animals. A bottom up thing is the landscape can support only a certain number of animals, right? Mm. And so this is this is sort of where elk can get themselves into a lot of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. If there are too many animals on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> I was taking a sip of my coffee too. And, and you're doing most of the talking. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> Do you have coffee in there? Is that... No, no, this is just water. That's water, okay. Just yeah. water. <clears throat> yeah, so we wanted to assess not only the top-down influences on this elk population, but also the bottom up. And so is the forage on the landscape enough to support the animals that are actually there? And to so to assess that part of the question, we looked at the nutritional condition of adult females. And so this is sort of, it functions kind of on a continuum, I'll say. So on one end of the spectrum, a population can be exclusively limited by predation. On the other end of the spectrum, it might be exclusively uh, limited by the forage resources, but somewhere in the middle is reality. Mm. And so, um, excuse me, I have a bug in my throat. That's okay. Um, so we try to assess where that is because it it will impact our management directions. Mm-hmm. Um, can we take a pause here for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Hang on. It was going to, I don't know. No, no, it's totally fine. I actually like those natural things. Like we haven't had anybody cough a ton or anything yet. So, well, so well at gotta... least we're 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 removed from one another, right? So yeah, well, we're, if, we're, we're, if I am actually sick, I don't think I am. But no, no, it's okay. If you need to cough, you cough. Right. It's, it's not right. a big deal. Right. I mean, or if you need to take a drink, take a drink. You're you're doing a lot of talking. Remember during COVID when it was offensive to like cough or sneeze or anything? I still feel like I'm doing. That I a noticed bit. that. I noticed that you were like, "Can we take a pause?" I'm like, "What? what? Just cough. <laughs> it's okay." And yeah. and you're so far away. How far are we? Like four, like three or four feet. Yeah. You can, if you wanted to not cover your mouth, it's totally fine too. (laughs) It's totally fine. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, but yeah, if you need to take a break and take a sip of water, take a sip of water. You're, you're, you're saying a lot of really awesome information and it's like, it's flowing along. I love it. And I'm trying to keep up with you actually. And, uh, yeah. So, so, um, you were on, uh, you were, you know, assessing the, the, the females as well, assessing, yeah. you know, trying to figure out the, the, in between the, 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 the two sides, whether it's top down or bottom up. And you said the reality is somewhere in the middle, where did you, um, where did, how did you end up not to cut that off? Cause I like where you're going with it, but 
did you find out that, hey, it was mostly bears. We increased the bear tags. We knocked down some of the bears, not to be crass, but, you know, we, we, we harvested some bears and that helped that region. Yeah. Was that the main? It did. It did. Yeah. The, the, the females were in good condition is what we assessed, uh -huh. what we came up uh, with. And the calves were dying of bear predation. And when we removed some of that bear predation using some hunting in mm -hmm. the spring, um, calves survived at a higher rate. So for a temporary thing, it did improve it. I see. It, it was, it had to be a really specific bear harvest though, like in around the calving area, cause it was a really specific calving area, these big open valleys. So we had to focus our efforts on only those bears that were actually the culprits, right? Yeah. Only the ones that were right there in the calving area at that time. And so it had to be pretty specific right before calving happened. Um, like we looked at bear harvest in the fall and fall harvest, even if it was higher, didn't impact that subsequent spring or summer for mm. calf survival. It had to be that spring. Yeah. So the bears, uh, I, I disclosed before we started the podcast, I just came off of a 10 day bear hunt and I learned a lot about bears. Um, and I've learned that they're really smart, um, from, you know, tracking them, like being really close to like super fresh tracks and, basically see them slip away from us, yeah. you know, when knowing that we were there and that kind of thing. Um, did you, did, is that what you found too? Did you find that, Hey, we had a smart population of bears that were in this valley or in this area that was just, uh, uh, is it predating? Yeah. That, Pred, that's, preda that's, predating on fawns. Yeah. I mean, I think bears just in general, like you said, are really smart, right? Yeah, yeah. Like they, I think they're smarter than we give them credit for a lot of times. Uh, sure. um, I mean, you, you think of bears up in Alaska that key in on a resource like salmon runs, right? Mm -hmm. And they do it year after year and they will teach their young to do it. And the young will come back year after year. I, th I think, you know, some of this happens on a scale that's that we don't all aren't always able to assess. Yeah. Um, but I think it happens across the landscape to a wider degree than just those salmon runs, right? Like, these elk calves are a specific resource on the landscape only for a certain amount of time. Like bears can only catch them when they're up to two weeks old. So that's like a month long window that bears can key in on it, mm, but see. they ha they do and they keep coming back and they keep, ha keep, um, preying on those calves. Yeah. And somewhere in Canada, I, I believe it was Canada. They found this with caribou calves and like GPS collared bears. The, the bears kept coming back during the calving season to those specific calving grounds because mm. it's a short resource on the landscape, but a really high quality one. Right. So. Right. That's awesome. Have you kept that? What year was that? That study was 2009 to 12. So 10 year, over 10 years ago now. I see. Have you, I know you have a, a, you have a humongous job. I mean, you have the whole state. So have you, have you looked at that area again closely like that? Or have you noticed that um, maybe the, uh, the calf survival has, uh, has taken a hit recently or, or do you know anything about that area now? You know, we just got finished flying fall helicopter surveys for elk, mm -hmm. um, and we're tabulating the data now. It seems like that area continues to struggle a little bit with calf survival. I see. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's gonna, I don't know how we're going to approach it. Yeah. Honestly. High density of bears still in there. Yeah. Yeah. Really, man, they like it up there, huh? Is they it do. up there? It, that's it, you said it northern, is high. right? Yeah, so it's like ten thousand feet. 
What game? Do you know what unit that is? Mm-hmm. What game? Uh, 55A. 55A. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's close to 5B or not. I have a tag in 5B for deer. Um, it's a, it's kind of removed. So it, it'd be north of Red River. Red River. North of Taos. Northeast of Taos. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. And so uh, I noticed that you also said that that's kind of a premier area for elk. Yeah. So what's that landscape like? What, how come the bears and the elk love it so much? What, what, what is it? Is it th- it's really productive. There's a lot of um, snowfall, precipitation, rainfall. Mm. So that's good for elk. It means a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for bears, it's a lot of open areas. Well, I guess both open and closed areas, but there's not a lot of development, right? So bears yeah. can just do their thing. I, so there's a lot of mast on the landscape in the form of like oak, um, like acorns and whatnot for bears to eat. When you say mast, do you mean trees? Mast, like um, like things that bears will eat. So acorns oh, would be I a see. mast, a really? mast crop. M-A-S-T? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah. I, yeah. But I'm a fool, so <laughs> I have no idea. What that... Sometimes as biologists, we, we say words and we just think everybody knows what they mean, like, no, like an ungulate good. and no, somebody love... looks at you like you have three heads. <laughs> I love the fact that you explained what ungulate means. I mean, I know what it is now, but the few ta- first few times I heard it, I'm like, I don't want to be stupid, but what is, I had to look on my phone. What is that? <laughs> oh, it's a hooved animal. <laughs> Oh, man, it was silly. Oh, so now I know what mast is, too. Great. Um, so, yeah, that's that was awesome. So you, that's how you got your PhD. You did that, yeah. that specific research. That's great. That's great. So that must help you. I mean, you're the big game manager. I saw on the, the you know, the website. You have, is it 10 species? On, oh, like, man. Let's you have see. 10. There's, there's deer, but there's two subspecies of deer. Actually, three. So I don't know. Oh my gosh! Count no, count them, count them all. Okay. Yeah, so that'd be we three right there. Cows, whitetail, regular whitetail, um, mule deer, pronghorn, elk, desert bighorn sheep, Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, javelina, oryx, ibex, Barbary sheep. Jeez, I gotta be missing something. You're past like ten already. You're at 11, eleven, right? Uh, no, you missed. You're missing. Well, like cougar and bear, right? Those do not fall under me. Oh, they don't? No. Oh, okay. Interesting. No. Okay. No, that, that split from this particular position, I don't know, maybe like f- seven years ago. I see. They're kind of, they're, they're a little bit of a different, I don't know, species, I, right? They're, they're predators rather than prey animals. Yeah. And, Did yeah. you, how long have you been in the position? Uh, my current job, seven years. Seven years. Okay. Yeah. So you did have them at, at one point. Kind of right when I got my job, it sort of split off. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Now you hunt, right? I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and we talked on the phone a little bit. Are you more of like a late onset hunter or did you? Really? I, I, my dad took me fishing when I was a kid, but uh, we didn't hunt. Um, Yeah. So as an adult, I had some really patient friends who (laughs) took me out, showed me how to handle a firearm, um, how to shoot, target practice, and then eventually go actually on a hunt. I wasn't successful at harvesting anything, man, for like almost 10 years, I would say. Really? Yeah. I mean, a big game animal anyway. I see. I was on hunts where somebody else was successful, Mm -hmm. but I screwed it up for one reason or another, (laughs) right? (laughs) Just learning. That happens to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So when, when was your first animal that you actually harvested by yourself? It was in 2017. So not that long ago. Yeah. 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 So seven years ago. Yeah. I... It was an oryx. Okay. So 
Were, were you by yourself or did, were you with other people? No, I was with somebody else. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, I, it's actually, it was a lesson hunt and also a successful hunt. What do you so mean a lesson? I, you know, I, I knew my, I wanted my distance to be out to, um, 200 yards. I didn't want to shoot beyond 200 yards. I shoot a 30 out six. It's an old gun. Mm-hmm. I like shooting it, but. Sure. Like that was the range that I'd practiced out to. So I didn't want to go further. But then in the heat of the moment, there was an Oryx and it was like at 200 and I don't know, 40 yards or something. And I was like, well, you know, I've been really like dialed in at yeah. this distance yeah. or 200 anyway. And it's just beyond the distance. It was like right before dusk. And, um, I felt really comfortable. I was set up nice. I took a shot and it hit low on the animal. Okay. Like, so when you shoot an oryx, you kind of shoot like right for right above where the shoulder is. Oh, okay. the, their vitals are like in a weird place. I see. They, um, they're higher then. They're yeah. kind of set up further into their chest cavity. I see. So they evolved. Oryx evolved with with like African lions. Oh wow! And so they have all of their vitals like up in, like oh. tucked away. Oh, okay. <laughs> in a weird got it. Spot. Got it. Got it. Um, anyhow, uh-huh. so when I when I when my shot was low. All I ended up doing was breaking one front leg mm. and, you know, we saw the animal run off. We tried to find, find blood that evening, found a little, tried the next morning, like the whole entire day. Oh. Um, didn't, you know, didn't come up with the animal even really like barely any blood. Uh-huh. And so I was in tears. Like this was yeah. a, this was traumatic, right? Yeah. Like I had practiced. I finally had a good shot. Um, I felt really good about it, but it was just beyond my distance. And I, you know, I knew it at the time, but that, I don't know, there was like sort of this, I don't know. I, I wanted to pull, I wanted to be successful so bad that I pulled the trigger and, and, you know, I really regret that, but it sure was a lesson that never again have I shot beyond 200 yards with that gun. With that gun. Yeah. Because the drop after 200 is pretty significant. significant. I Mm -hmm. see. So so you broke the leg. Yeah. You looked for a couple days. Looked for a couple days. Didn't find Had them. some tears. Had some tears. <laughs> Rightfully. Is there crying in right. hunting for there, guys too? There's also crying in baseball. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't care what they say. There's crying in baseball too. No, um, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> no, uh, no, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crying in, yeah. in hunting. Um, some people cry every time. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, you have criers. Like, like sure. I've seen a lot of dudes <laughs> and, you know, girls too cry, but, uh, there are what they'd call criers. I've seen people yeah. just, just break up, break apart and, they, and it's real. It's right. I yeah. I certainly don't think it's fake, you yeah. know, but it's emotional, mm-hmm. you know, and especially for your first hunt, I could just, I just put myself in your, that's why I asked you to tell me about it. I was like, oh man, if that was my first animal and I couldn't find them and I broke, I knew yeah. I broke the leg and I, oh, you know, it's tough. It's a tough one. So it was a lesson. Yeah. It was a lesson. Yeah. And then what happened? Took a couple days to, you know, get over it, I guess, and realize like, yeah, people make mistakes in hunting. That's yeah. part of it also. Sure. And it's probably better to get out there and try again than not, you know, like give up or something. Right. Right. So right. went back out and found a group of Oryx and had a good shot. One, one shot kill at. I think it was 130 yards, so within my range. Nice, nice, <laughs> yeah. nice. 
Yeah. And there, or I, I felt proud of that second shot because I, for one, I'd learned something. Sure. And for two, it, they're kind of hard to take down with one shot just because their vitals are so strange. They're in a yeah. weird spot. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was a kill shot immediately. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Though that's one thing that, uh, for listeners out there that if you are going to hunt Oryx, at least, you know, or anything, know really well, you already did, but know really well where the vitals are. Uh, of course, know like your capabilities. I feel like if I was you and at 240 and I was on at 200, I'd done the same thing. I'd have been like, hey, I'm comfortable. At, it's not that much further, yeah. and, you know, that kind of thing. I, um, I've learned a, a lot more about like um, about compensation, like wind compensation and drop and that kind of thing. I'm not not even close to being a pro, but I'm, you know, learning more and more about that. And that's super important uh, as far as if you're going to be an ethical hunter, you know. But, yeah, that's a, that's a great lesson to learn because it's tough because you, you cried and you're, you know, yeah. that's that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal, yeah. And the animal, who knows? I mean, I've seen animals out there that I'm, I'm sure you have too. You harvest an animal and it has... It has, it's been shot before, Mm -hmm. especially bears. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of animals out there that have been, I hate to say it, but like broadheads in them and, you know, you know, arrows in them and all kinds of stuff that you see out there. And that's, it's terrible to see. I'm sure the PETA guy wouldn't want to hear this. I I did a PETA podcast with, yeah, yeah, um, that was a really interesting one. I called PETA and they were like, well, who are you? What do you, what do you want? What do you, why do you want to talk to us? You know? And finally they agreed, but they only gave me a half hour window. Okay. And uh, they like, you can't come to us. It's only going to be over the phone. And so I was like, okay. You know, so I, yeah. just, I was like, I'll take what I can get sure, if they're, if they're sure. actually going to talk to me. Yeah. How and, did it go? Uh, well, it went to an hour and a half. Yeah, it went to an hour okay. and a half. And uh, I, you'll, if you listen to it, you'll hear me fumble on this machine because it was my first phone call. And I was like, hello, hello, hello. Like, and I'm trying to, you know, get him on the phone. Uh-huh. Finally get him on the phone. And... I'll say this. I'm just be honest. I'm sure, you know, at some point, hopefully he'll listen to to some of these other podcasts, but I felt, I felt that he was, um, first of all, I thank him for, for at least coming on and talking because he was very passionate about his position on not killing animals. Mm -hmm. And something that relates to you is that we, there was a point in the podcast where I asked him, I said, so let me ask you this, you know, you don't want to, you're against killing animals. It's totally respected by me. I mean, I get it, you know, um, I was against guns for a long time. I didn't pick up a gun until I started really started hunting. I, I was against guns, you know, and, and a lot of things changed for me. Maybe they can change for you. I don't know. But one of the things that we, we touched on was what if there was somebody, and there is, wildlife biologists that know way more than both of us, right? And they're telling you, for example, you, you know, you have a doctor in, um, in, in the subject and you're telling him, somebody who, who doesn't want any animals to be killed, you're telling him, okay, this, there's certain carrying capacity on this part of the landscape and we need to remove certain amount of animals in order for the other animals to flourish and for, you know, the landscape to survive. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm putting it very crassly. I, I, you, you would say a lot more eloquently than that. But what if there was a, an expert that was telling you that? What, what would you say to them? You know, you know, a certain amount of those animals need to be removed. How do we remove them? And um, he he still couldn't bring himself to agreeing to that. He mm-hmm. said they, and I and, I, and I, his name is Clayton. Clayton, if you're listening, I don't want to butcher your words, but it, but from what I understood you saying was, 
they they may or they may not know, right? Mm-hmm. And they could, they make mistakes and this and that. But and there were certain things I could push him on, mm-hmm. and then there were certain things I kind of just had to leave alone because I knew we weren't getting anywhere. Yeah. And that was one of them. And I wanted to push him further and said, "Come on, man." she's got a degree. She studied it. She's put years into it. Like she knows, come on, like, yeah, people make mistakes, but she clearly is telling us and she works for a state agency that this needs to happen. And yeah, I just couldn't bring him to certain parts of it. And he just kind of, you know, he wanted to keep that position of no animal should die anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, we should leave it to, we should leave it to the animals to manage themselves. And this is a great point for us to be uh, chatting about now, if he was here and, you know, you, we were t- talking about it and he was sitting in that chair and he said, yeah, we should, we, we really should leave them to manage themselves. A lay person who doesn't know anything, I have to admit, if I take myself out of all of this and try to look at it objectively, it, that might sound attractive to me. Like if I didn't want to kill animals and mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, and I was a vegan or whatever, I'm like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Like, why do we have to interfere? Yeah. What would you say to that? You know, I, I think if it were if it were me and I were a deer and I lived with millions of other deer on the landscape and I was starving to death, I think that would be a worse fate to starve to death slowly than to be killed by a bullet. I mean, yeah, because millions of deer on the landscape hurt themselves in addition to all of the other wildlife that are out there also. Sure. And so, you know, having, having some way of controlling a population or making sure they don't get themselves in trouble and starve to death or starve other things to death, mm-hmm. um, I think is, it's kind of our role as humans. We've not, not in like a God sense of, of that, but But just because we've changed the landscape so much already Mm -hmm. by developing it, um, putting roads across migratory pathways for animals, like removing predators from the landscape that used to be here, you know, 100 years ago or decades ago or whatever. And so it's kind of our job at this point to step in and do some of that. Mm -hmm. Like white-tailed deer in the Midwest are just going nuts. They don't have any more predators. The landscape has changed such that they really thrive in it. But if you just let them go, like they're going to be faced with a lot more problems like chronic wasting disease, perhaps starving to death if they got to a certain level of capacity, right. Or density. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. That's it's, it's tricky because I think the interesting thing is at the end of the day, like he values wildlife. I value wildlife. You do too. Yeah. Like we all have a common ground here. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's interesting to chat about, but yeah, yeah. we don't always agree on how, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we tried to find that com. That's what it was all about was trying to find that common ground. And I was, I, I said a lot on what we had in common, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, was, I love animals just like you love animals. And he would say, well, if you love animals, it's a weird way of showing it. Why are you killing them? You know? And we had this long campfire chat in bear camp last week about it too because uh, uh, I did it with a, a bear bio, a retired bear biologist been studying bears for 40 years and at some point he said he goes you know we don't need to be here these these bears are fine they, we don't need to be killing them and then I said well Randy what are we doing here then 
you know? Yeah. And then his son piped up and like, you know, of course he's, you know, we're all advocates for hunting, obviously, but it does, it does make you pause for a minute and be like, what, what am I doing? You know? I mean, I guess I could go buy ribeye at the, at the, you know, sure, at, sure. at the supermarket, but I couldn't, I couldn't, if, I mean, knowing the, the, having education behind it and knowing where that ribeye comes from and not ignoring that, then I feel like it's, it's much more ethical for me to harvest my own meat, mm-hmm. you know, rather than to think about, you know, I'm feeding into like, uh, you know, factory farming, you know, mass yeah. factory farming and what those cows and, and, uh, those, those, uh, pigs and all that, those, those, those animals go through in order to be, uh, you know, a piece of meat on the counter mm-hmm. at, the, at the supermarket. And I tried, that was another thing that we talked about too. But anyway, not to sidetrack, but it was a really great conversation because we did talk about wildlife biologists and specialists. I said, come on, Clayton, there's a doctor. She's sitting right there and like she's telling you we need to remove animals from there. And I get it. He was real passionate. He's just he he couldn't bring himself to saying it doesn't matter what you say, Jason. Yeah. No killing of animals. You know, I said, oh, okay. well, uh, we'll just have to think on that one. Yeah. And so, yeah, just trying to find common ground with them, you know? Yeah. So I think another interesting aspect to this conversation is the fact that hunters have been the ones that have paved the way for funding this work, Mm -hmm. right? There's not another, there's not a better way that I've seen anywhere in the world to pay for conservation, but what we have in America, which is the North American model of wildlife conservation. So hunters pay for wildlife to be conserved. Mm -hmm. And that came from a hunting perspective, right? Like Roosevelt and some of our, our founding folks who paved the way for hunters to be the folks that pay for it. Um, But they really do. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't just benefit those animals that are hunted. And this is one of the reasons I really um, enjoy working with big game and why I got into ungulates in the first place. Like there's these big dynamic animals that can be harvested, but while you're conserving them and people really value them, they put like a monetary value on these animals because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a spiritual experience to go hunt them, like any variety of reasons. Um, you, while you're conserving those, those elk on the landscape, you're also conserving all of the other species that are there as mm-hmm. well. Right. Like yeah. for it, for example, I get calls from out of state hunters every year wanting to put in for elk and they want to hunt in the Gila because they know it's like world renowned elk hunting area. Mm -hmm. Um, these people have never seen the Gila, right? They've never been there. They know nothing about it except that it has great elk hunting. Yeah. They've seen maybe a YouTube video. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that, but they've never been there. (laughs) Right. Yet like somebody from, I don't know, Maine values something in New Mexico that they may never see, Mm -hmm. but they're a taxpayer and it's got, it's a lot of forest land. And I guess like that monetary value on something and, and the fact that it conserves a whole lot other of other species on the landscape makes it pretty, I don't know, really valuable. It is. It's very valuable. And that's another thing I hate to keep, keep talking about the whole PETA thing, but I think it's relevant. Uh, we also talked about the amount of just time, money, effort, just everything that goes, you know, the Pittman Robertson, like everything that goes into, uh, if, I mean, if you were to erase all that, I mean, and this is something else I want to talk with you too, is about like family life. I mean, that the amount of time that we, we spend out there, 
the amount of, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this on multiple podcasts. I had like a really in-depth one with Travis about this. Like for, we talked probably for about 30 minutes about how it has made me a better person and, and the mistakes that I made, just like the one you made on that Oryx. I've made many a mistake like that before. And just up at night thinking about it for days on end, like, wow, like I need to be better. I need mm-hmm. to like, I need to make better decisions. I need to like not be so impulsive. I need, and it's not just about my shot. It's about life. Like it teaches you a lot. Right. Yeah. And then we also talked about time, the amount of time that we put into it, the amount of money. Like if you were to erase all that, I feel like we would really lose something in our American culture I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's, it's woven like the, the American flag into us is how I've seen it. And I've come to know that. I didn't know that before. Cause I just told you before, like I, I never, I hadn't picked up a gun until I started hunting really, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was against guns. But now that I've, you know, I've allowed myself and I was like Clayton. I was like, why do you, we, we, the, the thing that I associate with guns is I see it on TV. You got people killing each other with them. That's all I see. That's, and that's the, if you were to take that, take that away, then people wouldn't die. But that's not really the case, is it? You know, so it's, it's people like Clayton from PETA and, and even myself, both of us being more open-minded as to how we can better, not just interact, but also how we can, how we can manage better, you know, how we can do things better in our lives. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, long-winded kind of like dissertation on, on, <laughs> on the philosophies, uh, the philosophies of hunting. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think at the end of the day, you and I obviously see, especially you being late onset hunter too, we've grown to see how important it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, one big thing I wanted to chat with you about is you, as far as you being a late onset hunter, you obviously were a wildlife biologist then before or getting into the field before you became a hunter. So that transition happened while you were in in your or getting into your role, correct? Right. Yes, it did. Yeah. yeah. So how did how can you can you walk me through that? Did you before you started hunting were you like I don't understand why these people are hunting or did you just understand it and not not want to be part of it or didn't want to kill animals or how did it how did that evolve into you being a hunter later? I have always been just interested in animals, wildlife, whatever. I would catch lizards and bugs as a kid. So I've always been interested in it. I didn't, yeah, I, I guess I, when I was younger, I probably would have been more like, like you and we don't need guns. And even me personally, like, why do we kill animals? That's not right. Like Mm -hmm. some of my earlier thoughts, right. When I was a young adolescent developing myself Mm -hmm. as a person, Mm Um, and so in college I decided to study biology, um, thinking I'd be a veterinarian or be a zookeeper or something. I didn't know wildlife biology track or like this, the job that I have now, I did not know it existed. Um, but learning, you know, like being in college, learning more about wildlife science, um, and, and then developing a track into graduate school. I think that's where I really... Um, came in to enjoy what I do now. I had an option to either study um, squirrels as a, a graduate program or deer <laughs> slash elk. And so I picked deer and elk because they're, a, I don't know, they're a large mammal. It was 
an interesting landscape in the Southwest. And so I was interested in that. Um, but in, in, I think just learning how conservation of big game has benefited all these other species. Like I, I mentioned just a minute ago, that's what really like, like got me right. Mm. Like knowing that the funding behind it is so different than kind of any other, um, natural resource that we manage. It's mm. funded by the people that use it mm. and they, they want to keep those animals around and in doing so that conserves a lot of other species. And so it was like kind of a light bulb moment, I think and yeah. for me, just okay. knowing like that interesting, cause I didn't know Pittman Robertson was a thing. Like I studied biology in college. We didn't even talk about it. Oh, really? um, I would have, I mean, had I been in the wildlife field or wildlife department, I would have known, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to kind of, I guess, learn it on my own and, uh, in, in, you know, going out on hunts with some friends and just interacting with them in the field on mm-hmm. dove hunts or squirrel hunts or whatever. And kind of coming into realizing, wow, this is like, this is a pretty special thing that we have. Yeah. And no other, <clears throat> no other place really has it. Like I just visited Scotland wow. in July and... They don't have those big dynamic animals anymore. I mean, like they have some, but they don't have grizzly or brown bears. I don't remember exactly what subspecies, but they don't have those bears anymore. They don't have wolves anymore. Like they, yeah, but they don't have kind of this, this North American model of conservation that we have. So they sort of lost that. And it, the wildlife there doesn't belong to people. It belongs to like the landowner. Right. So Mm. it's, it's like an entirely different look. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting to think about. I, sometimes you don't think internationally. I mean, I know I don't. I, mean, I just think about here. And you're right. They don't have that model. And I wonder, wow, that I know they have like, um, they do have hunting. They have like red stag mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing, right? But yeah. but they definitely don't manage it the way we do. So when you say you look at the the, the landscape, when you're driving through the country, are you seeing a lot of animals or not really? In here or in Scotland? Scotland. We, you know, we saw a lot of domestic sheep. That's Oh, like a, yeah, sure. But we saw, let's see, we saw like, I think we saw a roe deer, um, a couple, some foxes. But, you know, it's, those wildlife belong to the landowner, that yeah. person, and yeah. not the public. And not so I think the public is a little more removed from them than we are here in yeah. the States. Did you go to hunt? No, no, just just, yeah, sightsee. Oh, that's cool. What's it like? How do you like it? It was beautiful. You can't take a bad picture of Scotland. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. It was gorgeous. It was like the dead of summer here Uh, in New Mexico, and in Scotland, it was like 60 degrees and kind of raining. So it was really nice. Oh, what a nice contrast. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I've always wondered uh, what Scotland would be like in Ireland and that kind of thing. Um, I actually looked into a a red stag hunt out there. Okay. Wanted to go out there and do that. And uh, emailing with them quite a bit. They're interesting people. They're nice people. Yeah. yeah I mean, on the email, of course, they want you to come, though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a friendly culture. Is I'm it? sure they're they're for real Is it? nice. Yeah. 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 Good. Oh, they're for real nice. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they're big beer drinkers. Right? Yeah. 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 That, that's fun. <laughs> That'll be fun. But uh, but anyway, yeah. No, thank you for that. That's awesome. So uh, on a personal note, um, how does hunting affect your like your your, your domestic life, your, your family life, or does it? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. I mean, just yesterday, my husband 
and I and a friend went to go hunt squirrels and grouse. Squirrels? Yeah. Have you ever had squirrels? They eat squirrels? Mm-hmm. How, yeah, is I have. How is They're it? They're good. Yeah. Okay. I hear the meat sweet. Yeah. Is it? Uh-huh. <laughs> really? It's kind of like dark meat, right? Like uh like a chicken thigh or something. Oh, okay. And take the t- and it tastes kind of like that? I I would say so. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then uh, you said uh squirrel and and grouse. Oh, yeah. Gr- oh yeah, I've heard a lot about yeah, grouse. I've never grouse. had grouse either. People say grouse is amazing. Yeah, it is good. It you know, in in my learning how to cook game meat, you have to deal with it a little bit differently, right? So, like slow cooking it is better sometimes because it can be a little more tough. It doesn't have as much fat. Oh, so I'm still I'm still perfecting my grouse recipes. Oh, so okay. yeah, <laughs> it is tasty, but it's funny the yeah. guys that in bear camp I, f- I swear they were more excited about grouse than they were bear. Oh, yeah? they're like, if you see a grouse, they, they, like keep your shotgun handy. <laughs> you know, they were like really excited about that grouse. I was like, I can't wait to taste that meat. Yeah, but uh, we saw a grouse and uh, but we didn't we didn't shoot any we didn't shoot anything. But um, Awesome. So that's good. So, uh, your husband hunts mm-hmm. and he, he, did he teach you or did he, has he been hunting a long time or did you teach him or he's been hunting his whole life? We only met like five years ago, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd been hunting his whole life. I had not obviously. Um, so yeah, we kind of came, I don't know. Hunting was one of the ways that we sort of connected I see. as a couple. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that's, and that's one big thing about the culture and the family life that I love to like to impress upon people who maybe don't understand it because I've noticed, and I don't know how many times I've said it, but I've noticed like there's just, there's this wholesome quality to people that I've noticed anyway that hunt. And I don't know, it's of course not 100%, it's not universal. But I've noticed it quite a bit coming from a different background, more of like an urban background. And there's something there about the it's either the appreciation of the animal or uh, harvesting your own meat and or the preparation and sitting down at a table all together and eating something that you know that you worked hard for and not just picked up at the supermarket. I don't know what it is. I always constantly try to kind of strive to put my finger on it, but I don't know. It's like this un, you know, or maybe I just can't articulate it. I don't know, but I just, I've always noticed that. And I've always noticed that families that hunt, they just seem to be, to have more of like this, um, adhesiveness that, that some other families may not on that end. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, just thinking on our brief little hunting trip yesterday, like you get to spend time with those people unconnected meaning like no cell phones right yeah. like maybe you're looking at onyx or something but sure. you're not texting or looking at the news um and it's like kind of one-on-one yeah. and you get to see little like little successes like oh you got that squirrel with a bow yeah. that's so fun yeah no that was cool yeah. <laughs> and my friend did she got a squirrel with a bow oh nice crazy. nice that's um, awesome yeah, wow, so like, that's pretty, that's right on right there. I know. Yeah, yeah. it was a squirrel with a bow. Yeah. So, oh, okay. How far was she? How far was she? I not? didn't ask. Probably within 20 yards or something. That's nuts. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you yeah. get to see these little successes, right? And celebrate with your friends or loved ones or, or even little failures like me failing at, you know, hitting an oryx not in the right place and, you yeah. know, having an emotional time and like being there for your friends and family. I don't know, in a, in a different, a different way than maybe your day to day. Yeah. A way that's disconnected I, to your point there, which is great. That's one. Cause then you're f- actually focused on the person and not scrolling or, or looking down at yeah. your phone or whatever. You're actually into the, to the conversation. 
And then what I've noticed too, I, I do a lot of bonding over glassing. Like if mm-hmm. you're glassing with somebody, it's a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of glassing conversation, almost like a pillow talk. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> these like intimate moments about things yeah. and you're just kind of looking through your binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's cool. Yeah. But for, I, I wish I could do it with a girl. Yeah. It's mostly with my buddy. Are you sure? We're, like, <laughs> we're talking about, like, yeah, I was like, I didn't, I didn't know that you were that sensitive. Oh, okay. You know? So, but anyway, there's something that I can't put my finger on there, but there's there's just some kind of glue that holds uh, families together like that. And, uh, but yeah, it's kind of hard to articulate without somebody experiencing it, I think. Totally, totally. Because again, you don't have the phone there. And then if, if you could only just imagine that you're out in nature, you're not hearing any horns honking, you're just if anything, birds or the wind, and you're just sitting next to somebody. Mm-hmm. And there's this, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's like a, uh, even like a physical thing too. Like you're just, you're sitting close to somebody and you're just kind of, you know, watching out in the distance and having like a conversation. It's like, it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's really neat. And then you bring it home, even if your like, wife or other half, let's say they don't hunt or they stayed home, you come home, you share the story and, you know, and uh, yeah, I just think there's something to that. I'm sure that I can't think of anything right off the bat, maybe a football game or something other people can relate to, to where they're keyed in and together and doing that and having fun and yeah. um, or concert. I don't know. But um, for some reason, hunting is, and I, you know, I'm old enough to where I've experienced a ton of stuff, but there's, but there's nothing like it on yeah. that end. And that's something I always like to throw out there and, and, and if somebody who's listening who doesn't hunt or, or doesn't know much about it, I liked that that sounds attractive if it does to them because it it's like you're saying there's this it's more there's more to it it's hard to articulate mm-hmm. unless you actually do it so it's the same thing with killing an animal you know like when you yeah. take an animal's life you know it's like there's something difficult about that to articulate too but anyway I don't want to bs too much I wanted to talk with you about your I was going to say 10 different species, but it's way more. It seems like it's way more than that. I don't know. We tried, we listed them, but yeah, yeah. ish, 10 ish. Yeah. I wanted to go down the list a little bit. Okay. Kind of. Um, and start with some of the, the ones that are, um, we know, obviously, and anybody listening or any hunter that's seasoned at all, even a little bit knows that New Mexico is known for certain things like, like big and big game mm-hmm. and elk is a big one. Like you've, you're known for, um, your management of like, I mean, when you, when you actually Google elk hunting in America, I don't know that, that New Mexico pops up first or anything. I think Colorado may, because they have like maybe the biggest herd of elk. But certainly for trophy animals, for, for, for big, um, you know, quality yeah. management, you guys are right at the, the, the top of the heap. And from talking with Travis, um, he attributes that to more of like the weather um, or the weathers or the winters are a little bit more mild here and you don't have the, the drop off that some like harsh winters do north of here or whatever. Would mm-hmm. you say that that's one of the big reasons why the elk is so popular or the, the quality of elk is, is, is at the top of the heap here? Yeah, I think that's one reason. I think another reason is there's some areas that we specifically manage for older age class males. I see. Um, and so it's partly, you know, partly weather related, also partly like it's it's a goal that we have and, and we're specifically trying to get older age class males. So nice. harvest is not as, we don't harvest as many 
males, I guess. Gotcha. So it's more of a quality, what we would call a quality hunt. So fewer hunters, mm. but a better chance at an older male. So I see. Are you proud of, of, I'm sure you are, but are you proud of your management where it is right now? Do you feel like you have a, like a ways to go? Certain people have goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you're where you need to be? Are you maintaining, just sustaining, or are you, are you striving to be in a certain, in like a, even like, I would say higher class, but like mm-hmm. in a different class of, of management or are you happy with where you are just for elk? For elk, you know, I think our elk population is doing great. There's certain segments of the population that are maybe struggling a little bit more mm-hmm. than others, but for the most part, you know, elk are pretty, they're doing pretty good. Are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really are. I like that smile. Yeah. You're like, yeah, they're doing good. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're kind of, they're funny. They're a generalist animal. So when What's I that say mean? that, that means like they can eat a variety of forage. They can eat grass, forbs, whereas like deer just will focus on forbs and mm. browse. Mm. Um, but elk can sustain themselves on like, a, I guess a lower quality diet I or see. a variety of other things. And so even with, you know, like drought conditions, like occasionally we've seen in the last 10 years, um, elk still do all right. Mm-hmm. They do pretty good. They can weather those those situations a little bit better than like a deer could. Gotcha. Okay. Um, for somebody listening, of course, who's like a just a trophy person, I was going to say a trophy guy, but trophy person, um, can you disclose like what units are the best? Like the, you know, not that you have secrets here, but like, are you like, are you particularly proud of certain game management areas that, wow, there's some huge bulls there, you know, in this area versus another part of the state where like we're really trying to manage that one a little bit better? Um, yeah, I probably the Gila region. So like 16, A, B, C, D, E, um, 17, 13, even unit 12, though that area really just seems for, for like older age class males, that's sort of the goal for the, that segment of the population. And Mm -hmm. it seems like they're always doing pretty good. They're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. That would probably be the highlight. I mean, like there's, there's fantastic elk populations in other parts of the state too. Mm -hmm. Um, like the Southeast around, let's say unit 34 and 36, there's a lot of a lot, just a lot of elk period in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can come across older age class males in that area also. I see. Um, but the Gila region, I don't know, I guess I have some special place in my heart for that region. Yeah, a lot of people it's, do. Yeah, yeah. It's my favorite part of the state. Yeah. There's just, I don't know, you can get away from any cities and it's just such a vast landscape. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. There's so many people that talk a lot about that area and, uh, have had, of course you see it online, plenty of success down there too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I figured you were going to say that, um, uh, staying on elk for just a minute. Um, you did, you know, your PhD and you, you spent a lot of time, uh, with elk, uh, Jason, uh, who was I talking to? God, I've talked to so many people about elk recently, but I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about how, um, there's a mystique about them and, um, how they're, they're really special in comparison, not that any other species isn't special, obviously, but there's something about them that's just, uh, again, like hard to articulate. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. Think so why, why would you say, um, they're, they're big, you know, they have a dynamic breeding situation and display, right? The males will bugle, 
gather a bunch of females, they'll fight. I don't know. They're just, they're also easier to see than other animals. So I think maybe we see them more often, but I don't know. There is just something, right? Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. something there about them. There is something about them. They're also goofy too. Are they really? Yeah. Like you've seen them run off, right? Yeah. Like you scare them and they run off yeah. and they, they stick their heads up or their nose in the air and they run off like they're, they're offended <laughs> at you. Right. That makes yeah. me laugh every time they do it. Uh-huh. Like they don't run off just like any other animal would. They, they really just stick their head up and. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And then there's this, um, I don't know, again, I'm going to butcher like a lot of, you know, what I say as far as terminology, but what is it when they, um, they stick their their nose out and then that like a bull i'm talking about a bull specifically and he puts his antlers back and he's it looks like he's running and smelling yeah. is that what he's doing he is yeah he is he's like yeah. running and smelling at the yep. same time that yeah oh, okay got it got it cuz yeah. i i i mean elk are fairly new to me too but i you know i've hunted them so i've seen them enough but whenever they do stuff like that or whenever they're like they do stuff like what you just said you're right maybe the, it, it, they are very unique in some of the things because I don't I've never maybe deer do it too but I, I don't think that I've seen deer do it like elk do it yeah yeah, yeah. elk are very obvious about what yeah he, he when he does that he's trying to detect a female that's an estrus that he could breed so uh, when he's doing that around a group of females like he can detect like okay that one uh-huh. is an estrus right now uh, I see yeah when he gets close to them and he licks their behind or he's like constantly licking 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 before he gets up to their behind mm-hmm. is he, he's smelling with his tongue too mm-hmm. like yes. so he's like oh she's close yeah or she's yeah. okay she's not ready yet and then he'll right. go to another one that kind of thing yeah yeah i didn't know if it was anything like more than that i was like oh he's that's what he looks like he's doing to me you know yeah. what i mean from yeah. so that's interesting um yeah i love it i love elk and you're right they're so dynamic as far as like how they call and yeah. how they how vocal they are and how just yeah how how super interesting even they the are. calves and cows like in the summertime when the bulls are off you know feeding on their own and in, in, in gr- groups of males the females and calves like doing field work with elk they are those animals are constantly talking to one another. Really? <laughs> yeah. They're mewing. And like, if there's a group of a hundred, like you don't, you, you actually get tired of hearing them if you're close by. Uh, like, I oh see. my gosh, can you stop, stop talking? Stop talking. <laughs> can, yeah. I, can I hear stop a bird? Maybe? please. No, yeah. but it is, it is really cool. Yeah. 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 That's cool. So, uh, good, I'm, yeah, thanks for touching on calling. Cause that makes me, uh, you know, when, uh, to think about bugling and that kind of thing during the rut, when guys are always, or women or whoever hunters are bugling and, and cow calling and bugling. Do you know a lot about calling or, or oh, I'm kind of a novice elk hunter, to be honest. Oh, like okay. I'm a good elk biologist. But yeah. <laughs> but, as far as an elk hunter, uh, yeah, I but, harvested a cow, two uh, cows and that's all. Hey, so. you're, you're, you're elk hunter still. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for yeah, sure, yeah. for sure. I I am, but I don't. I don't guess I don't have a, a really strong opinion on Uncommon. on that. I do think that you know, just being with them in the field, they are, yeah, they they are not bothered by noise because they're noisy themselves. Like moving yeah. through the landscape, they're always talking to one another. So, um, you know, next time I have a bull hunt, whenever that might be, yeah. I'll probably let me know about be, the calling. Be calling more more than. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. More than not. Um, they, 
And that's another thing. Thanks for saying that as, as far as the, the, uh, the noise, because sometimes you think you got to be like super quiet, but you're right. They sometimes they're quiet and they'll just show up and that they're standing there next to you. Or sometimes you can do, you hear them raking or breaking branches and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So it's mostly wind then. It's mostly like getting your scent. Once they get your scent, that's when they're pretty much gone. Just like bear, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so we'll move on to um, deer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, mule deer for the most part in this state, but you do have like you disclosed uh, whitetail and then and then cow's deer is mm -hmm. a subspecies of whitetail. Yeah. Right. Yep. And that's it. Those three. Yes, those three. Okay. Um, mule deer, for example, are diffuse throughout the state or are there um, like like big populations in certain part of the state? Um, they can be found really anywhere in the state. I'd say some of our higher density populations would be northern New Mexico, like the Farmington area around Chama. Um, sometimes though, those can be shared populations, I guess, with Colorado and in the fact that they're migratory. Right. So they spend the winters in New Mexico, but may summer in Colorado. Um, so the higher densities I'd say would, would be maybe for mule deer would be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the northern part of the state. Yeah. I've, I've pretty much seen that too they especially the quality animals from what i what i understand are you familiar with the hickoria or do you do any work with them or talk with any of their yeah we we you know we share information on harvest and and survey data and whatnot um mm -hmm. you know we don't make joint decisions together necessarily because they're their own sovereign land and they can do whatever they want and um right. But yeah, we do communicate with them regularly. Yeah. I have a, a podcast scheduled with uh, Kyle. Oh, yeah. Tater. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Kyle and Bernard. Okay. Do you know Bernard? Yeah. I don't know Bernard, but yeah. I do know Kyle. Um, I guess Bernard's his, I don't know if it's his supervisor or they work together. Um, Bernard is more on the, well, from what I understand anyway, more on the um, native side. And then Kyle is the, the biologist yeah. out there. So I'm excited to talk with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be pretty cool to see how they kind of interact with, cause my, the unit that I have, like my tag is five B and right. it's like, it borders that. So, but it's going to be after my hunt, unfortunately. Yeah. I was going to, I was hoping to get some inside info, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's going to be after, cause everybody's, you know, this is a, thank you for doing this during hunting season, yeah, by the way. Sure. Like, this is yeah. crazy. I'm, I can't believe somebody's like, yeah, we can do it during hunting season. <laughs> um, but, uh, so and then the white-tailed deer are like border more Texas. Yes, you would yeah. say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any like uh, like trophy animals out there? Like any big-time hunting, or it's just just like a population of, of white tails that come across? Would you know? Like the northeastern corner of the state, there was um, I think it was a youth hunter that just harvested. Um, I think it was the new New Mexico Boone and Crockett record whitetail really? out of northeastern. A couple. Maybe a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're, they're, so they're in there. They're in there. Wow. Had, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Big difference between behavioral uh, 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 similarities between or a contrast between whitetails and mule deer as far as how they behave in, in landscape or? You know, I don't know. I mean, it maybe depends on the area, but they can be found side by side in, in the places that they are found in the same place. So right. yeah, maybe... You know, like maybe mule deer, you might think of in a little more rugged environment than whitetail, maybe being on like um, valley bottoms, but that's not. Yeah. 
you know, that's not exclusively exclusively where they are. So gotcha. But they're deer. So yeah. deer, like they're gonna they're gonna. Is it cohabitate? Is would that be this like yeah, in the that same would be land? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so mostly northeastern for the whitetails, and then bordering kind of Texas, mm-hmm. and then a little bit of Colorado. Was it what what state is that? Is that Colorado? It's Colorado and Oklahoma. Colorado, gotcha. Oklahoma. Oh yeah, Oklahoma's got good. Yeah. Like they got yeah. good everything. I mm-hmm. think other than elk, right? They don't have a lot of elk. I don't know. Yeah, I think I hear a lot about bear. I hear mm-hmm. a lot about deer up yeah. there. Yeah, they're and they're big hunters up there. Okies. Yeah. The Okies. <laughs> yeah. I'm proud. Uh, moving right along, uh, I wanted to talk a lot about ibex actually. Okay. Um, the Floridas, mm-hmm. the Florida Mountains, which is in southern New Mexico. Um, a lot of people would be surprised or some would be surprised to know that you have the only population of free range ibex in the entire lower 48. Right. Right. Um, are you, as far as their management right now, where are you with that? Are you pretty happy with where you are? Are you trying to, um, put more billies on the landscape? Like, you know, that's male, uh, Ibex for people out there. Or is it, what's, what's the female term? Nannies. Nannies or nannies. Like what, where, where are you with that? Yeah. So Ibex, just exotic species in New Mexico are interesting, but Ibex are one of a few exotic species that were reintroduced or not reintroduced, sorry, introduced because they were never here Mm -hmm. um, in the seventies by our state agency. And so now we manage them just like we do elk or deer so Mm -hmm. they have the same protections they're fully protected species you can't harvest them out of season or whatever Mm -hmm. um i'd say our goal the state's goal with ibex at the moment is to increase the population some Mm -hmm. they're challenging species to survey they have you been to the florida mountains i haven't no oh man it's the most rugged mountain range in new mexico really yeah yeah, How high like, are they? Are they like uh, that mountain range in uh, just in Albuquerque? What is that mountain range called? The Sandias. Sandias. Okay. They're what is the relief? The Floridas. I think they're like, yeah, maybe four or five thousand feet off the valley floor. What do you say, relief? Dim- yeah, relief, like um, elevational difference from the bottom of the mountain to the top. That's what's that's relief. That's what yeah. that's called. Oh, awesome! Mm-hmm. It's a cool term. Yeah. So the so relief they're, is. Yeah, they're like, they really jut out of the mountain. Or out of the ground, Out of the ground. Yeah. Okay. So it's flat and then all of a sudden, boom, you see this thing. Big random Rocky Mountain. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And it's cliffy. They just, so Ibex are cliff obligates, meaning they have to live on cliffs. Like that's what they key in on and that's what they want for their, you know, being able to detect predators. I see. So they live in these, just this most, the most rugged environment and, you know, they can, scale these cliffs they run across the cliffs like when we do helicopter surveys you're like how do they how are they running across this cliff that looks vertical yeah. to me yet they're running on the face of the cliff oh, that's like they crazy. just find little nubs of rock that their feet can stick on and um yeah so they're they're hard they're challenging because they're hard to survey mm. and so we have a hard time estimating how many we have um and they can also have in in a, in a good condition year, they can have the females can have two kids each, um, and their survival can be pretty high. Mm. And so, like, they're like a population that can boom really quickly. And so, That's we don't cool. want them to boom really quickly. We want to we oh, want to maintain really? them on that mountain. 
I like see. it's nice if they're doing well. That'd yeah. be, that's that's always great. But we don't want them to go to adjacent mountain ranges where we have desert bighorn sheep, for example. Mm-hmm. And when they get to a certain population size, they will disperse to those other mountain ranges, and we don't want them there. How come? How come we well, don't want them Well, a couple reasons. For for one, they're um, so bighorn sheep can be exposed to this pathogen called Mycoplasma ovomonomoniae, mm-hmm. and it's a bacteria a bacteria that lives oftentimes in domestic goats and sheep Mm -hmm. um that doesn't cause any problems to those domestic animals but can make bighorn sheep really sick and die i see and that can be chronic meaning like that population can keep that bug or that bacteria and pass it on to young year after year after year and so that sometimes results in a population crash or at, at the very minimum like a struggling bighorn population i see and so Ibex are, would be one animal that could carry that bacteria. And so we just don't want to like bighorn sheep are a native species. And mm. we, we put a lot of effort and time and money into continuing to restore them. Mm-hmm. And so Ibex, while they're important, we don't want them to go to other ranges and populate other ranges. Gotcha. That makes sense. Thank you for saying that. I would, yeah. Um, Wow, that's I, I would because my next question was like you they introduced those and I read that it was like in the I want to say the seventies sixties or seventies mm-hmm. is when they introduced those ibex um, oryx too right they yeah. right around that time and those are two are those the only two species that were int- actually introduced in Mexico not reintroduced introduced oryx and ibex. Those are the two that or barbary sheep. Stuck. Yeah, or, barbary sheep. That was that was an interesting. I can't find like the like the true origin of exactly where barbary sheep came from in the state i think maybe some escaped from a high fence area mm. and then the state maybe released some more like i don't know the maybe texas timing of events. yeah maybe yeah. texas yeah, yeah. speaking um, of texas uh axis deer have you guys mm-hmm. ever thought about introducing axis deer i don't so i'm i'm just throwing this out there yeah they're awesome yeah. <laughs> okay. Have you ever been I've around not, them? No, I've Man, not been God, around them. God, the meat is so good. That's what I've heard. It's so good. Yeah. And they populate, I don't know what, I forget the term, but they populate rapidly. It's like, yeah. boom. Yeah. Like they're just, there's, before you know it, they're everywhere. Yeah. It's, they're in Hawaii, they're in Texas, Argentina, you know, uh, what is it? Um, not Nepal, um, Sri Lanka or India, you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, originally from India, I believe. But um, any thoughts? Would that be like a big deal if like somebody said, hey, let's introduce Axis yeah, Deer? People I, would freak out. They would. Yeah. They would? Why? Yeah. Why? I mean, so when, when it was done in the 70s in New Mexico, 60s and 70s, the I think the, the social climate was different at that time. Mm. Like people wanted to introduce these species for the benefit of hunters so that there could be an animal in what was considered at the time vacant habitat. Um, it's, Mm -hmm. it wasn't really necessarily vacant habitat, but yeah, I mean, anytime you introduce an exotic species onto the landscape, you kind of don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. (laughs) Believe me, I thought about that before I asked the question. I did, but I was like, let me be selfish for a second and talk about (laughs) how we can introduce access to Yeah. Well, we tried, the state tried a few other species, Siberian Ibex were released. There was a wild population of those. For a little bit in, mm-hmm. I think, the 70s. Um, Kudu. Kudu, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We have an interesting um, Red Rock wildlife area down north of Lordsburg. 
is where we used to like during this time we brought animals in and propagated them in these these pins mm. they're like large you know i don't know one square mile pin um, i see high fence in this area but the remnants of those pins are still there and we use it for our our captive desert bighorn sheep population but oh. But the origin of it was like all these weird exotic species oh, cool. that we tried to, we tried to get to stick in New Mexico, and you really? know, we not all of them s- succeeded. So, oh, what did succeed are oryx and ibex. So uh, that's an interesting story. Yeah. So not, not um, I'm sure not a lot of people know about that. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Just an area that you could technically use for that. That it's still high fenced off. And it is, and got, we still use it. Desert sheep in yeah, there. Yeah. Still cool. use just for sheep. Though. Interesting. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, I was thinking about that because I was like, hey, they have oryx. They have, uh, you know, ibex. Like this seems like a state that would, yeah. you know, think about it because Texas has got everything. Right. Right. I mean, barbary zebras. sheep. They got ze- they free range zebras. Well, I don't know if they're free range. I know some branches have them. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't. Yeah. It. You know, it's weird. <laughs> I was just thinking a zebra. Can you? Could you domesticate a zebra? Like to to ride a zebra? I don't know. I've I've heard they're mean, but I really? don't know. I've really? never interacted with a yeah. zebra. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I just <laughs> thought that. I was like, because anytime somebody brings up a horse, my mind goes to mule. Yeah, because I was because I've always thought, and I've because I've ridden uh, a few mules in Hawaii before on on the cliffs in in Molokai when they used to do those tours down to the leper colony down there, yeah. or called the Hansen's Disease Colony. But um, they are awesome. Mules mm-hmm. are really smart. They're not trying to kill you or themselves. Yeah, right. A horse would probably run off a cliff, you know, if it got spooked. Yeah, a mule is very smart and deliberate about about no, I'm not walking out there. I don't care what you do, kick me, whatever, yeah. you know, put the, put your spurs in me. I'm not going over there. You know, I'd spent some time around mules and then I thought about, um, zebras wondering if you could domesticate those. That's, that would be pretty cool. I'm sure somebody's tried, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Especially in Texas. Right. Um, I, you know what else I, I was, while we're on some, you know, this weird kick, I always, I thought about, um, domesticating moose too. Oh. Cause I've heard moose are like really smart. Yeah. And like, especially when they're young, they're, they're, you know, just like a deer, they, they, it's like a pet. They can come up to you and that kind of thing. And I always thought about, Hey, I wonder if you could use moose to hunt. That'd be pretty neat too. think about weird stuff like that. I have a colleague who just recently retired and he, um, you remember the show Northern Exposure? I do. I never watched it though, but I, I heard that that was really popular. It's a super Twin Peaks. Is that, is that the same thing? I don't it remember. Was during the Twin Peaks? No. Maybe. Oh, okay. In any case, there's a moose in the like the opening credits, right? You know, where they have the jingle and there's a moose because it's a northern state. And uh-huh. um, my my colleague who just retired, that was his moose. It was like really? not really his pet moose, but kind of. So he was at the time doing research on, you know, if probably feeding habits of moose. And so he had he had raised this moose from a young animal. Mm-hmm. And so it like trusted him and followed him around. Exactly. That was, yeah, that was his moose. So the maybe you can. Domesticated moose. No, Yeah, I'm maybe serious. you need to talk to Eric. Yeah, yeah. Eric. <laughs> Eric Rominger. Oh, who's that? He's, he's the colleague that had the moose. Oh, that's yeah. his name? Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. That's funny. Um, speaking of moose, a, pic- a buddy took a picture of a moose in New Mexico the other day. Yeah. He sent it to me. He goes, yeah. this was, it was in northern, like right. Farmington area. 
or Aztec or something. The moose was just running off the side of the road. I'm like, there's moose? He's like, yeah, obviously. He's like, there's a big old moose right here. Yeah. So there's moose? Occasionally. You know, what we've been seeing in the last few years are usually younger male animals that have come in to New Mexico from Colorado. Mm. It's got to be. We don't, you know, I don't, we don't have like an established population of moose necessarily. But just a few weeks ago, um, there was one male that showed up in basically downtown Santa Fe. Wow. And we had to go dart him and move, move him. him back north. Move but him out of like out to a different state? No, he was, we released him in New Mexico still, but further north I near see. the Colorado border. Wow. So And then he showed up again in Abiquiu like a week later. So I don't know where he is now. Really? Oh, <laughs> the poor thing. He's looking for something. He is. Um, so <laughs> that's so cool. If you, ha- if you were to like speculate on your moose population, of course, it sounds like it'd be very small. Yeah. But how many animals do you think? Well, right now, my best guess would be like one to two. <laughs> really? That's it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's usually just males. And so that's a thing that with younger males, they'll just, they'll go on a walk about and try and disperse and find, you know, breeding opportunities outside of a place that has an established large male that would run uh, them off. I see. And so they're just kind of searching oftentimes. I, and so I, I think that's probably what we have in northern new mexico is you know an occasional wandering through individual keeps getting but, kicked out of his little area yeah i did see a picture of a, a female maybe a couple of years ago around the chama area so you know yeah yeah they, they might be some some stuff up there now if a hunter sees a moose you can't mess with them no you gotta let them go and like just yeah. let, let you know let nature do its thing with that right yeah just to make sure people yeah, know they're that protected yeah. Um, so no thoughts about introducing them, right? Or introducing I mean, anything. They seem to be doing it themselves at the moment. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so but, okay. If they established here. You're yeah. okay with it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. But it like they'd be naturally doing it themselves from Colorado. I see. So what if somebody saw an axis deer somewhere? Like, you know, what, what would you do? Be like, oh. Yeah. I or a think, couple of them. So if we had an axis deer, that... Like anybody who would have that in the state would have to be permitted to have it. Oh, no, I mean like free range. Like they were just running around. Oh, look, I sent you a picture of an axis deer out in, I don't know, wherever, on the Texas border somewhere because there's a a ton in Texas. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's not too much you would do unless it became a problem type of thing. Unless we were concerned for some reason of like some disease issue. I mean, I don't Mm. know. Because presumably if it were... A random axis deer. Well, I guess I don't know. Maybe I would assume that it came from a high fence, but maybe that's not really true in Texas. Yeah. Maybe you know more there's, about that. No, there's a ton of high fence out there, but there's also a ton of free range from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're on the border though. And of course, Texas is like a country. Right. I mean, it's so big. Like who the heck knows? But I just know that they are resilient. You yeah. know, I did a, a, a axis deer podcast actually with a, a specialist and he... He told me that they're more akin to elk than they oh, really? are, than they are even whitetails. They stave off uh, CBD and that kind of and not CBD was it um, CWD? CWD? Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> CBD. Um, yeah, they stave off CWD. Yeah, uh, huh. yeah. Um, but not that they don't get it. Right. But yeah, so um, they're more um, akin to like the old world species of like stags and yeah. elk and that kind of thing, from what he said. Yeah, that was an interesting conversation too about axis deer. He says they, 
uh, they displace whitetail too. They're bigger and they run yeah. in herds and, you know, usually they, they push whitetails out. So that might be a concern too right. for you. Um, awesome. Uh, javelina. Yeah. Javelina. So javelina versus pigs, big difference. Big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not related at all. But really? Yeah. You would think so though. Yeah, I know they look, they, they look kind of similar. Same family, but, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean like they probably share some ancestor way back, but yeah, they're not. Uh-huh. Have you ever had, have you ever, ever eaten? Yeah. Uh, javelina. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah, it's good. I made tacos. I mean, really? you can make you can make tacos out of a lot of things. Really? And no, ground, it was good. The halfling too, was good. Yeah. 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 So similar to pork? Um, it was like I don't know. Maybe like a lighter colored meat. It wasn't really a dark meat. Mm-hmm. So But not terrible. No. Okay. No, it wasn't terrible at all. Okay. Um, and I there's... do know they have like scent they have scent glands. That's kind of how they can communicate with one another. And so you got to be pretty careful when mm-hmm. you're skinning them and processing them to not Bust screw up. around with those yeah, glands because those really smell bad. Gotcha. And a big population of those? In, yeah, we have a in, good population. Yeah. yeah. The southwestern part of the state is where Havelina Stronghold is. Gotcha. This is going to be a stupid question, but I hear the term peccary a lot. Yeah. What, what does that mean? It's the same thing. This the pe- Havelina is in some places called a collared peccary. Like they have a call, what looks like a collar around their neck. It's just a color marking, like a lighter kind of white color around their neck. And so, yeah, some places they call them collared peccaries. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, Not too much to say there. I mean, I don't think that they're like really sought after unless I'm mistaken. They're fun to hunt. I mean, like they don't have very good eyesight. So like bow hunters, I know really enjoy hunting them because you can get pretty close to, pretty close to them. Yeah. Uh, another stupid question is, is, are pigs akin to bear in any way? I mean, probably, I mean, we, we're all mammals, I guess, but at some point, like, yeah, I thought I read that somewhere. And then, uh, the bear biologist said, no, they're not, they're not even close. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm like, man, I swear I read that, you know? And then somebody told me that they read it too. That I tried to find huh. it online and I couldn't find it. I'm like, where did I read that? And uh, but it's somehow I know it sounds weird, but somehow somehow it makes a little sense to me. But you don't know that you don't. I know. don't know that. Okay, so definitely, pig are completely different than the collared peccary right. than the javelina, yeah. which I thought that that was. <laughs> I didn't think that at all. I thought yeah. that they were very close. Yeah. And then, and then bear, we have no idea. Yeah. No. Okay. Got it. All right. Uh, where are we now? How, how many have we done? We've done everything. Oh, big horn. Big horn sheep. Big horn yeah. sheep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I haven't even thought about hunting them. I mean, because it seems like it, it's so number one coveted and so expensive. And like people tell me like price ranges of, of hunting rams. I'm like, no way. Like that doesn't even compute in my, uh, yeah. economic world. Like how would you spend was it forty something thousand dollars sure. to, to hunt a ram? Is that true? Is it are they are they like they, that? They can be that expensive if you're buying like a private hunt or we have some auction tags. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with that, but like we is that like a governor's tag yeah, type of thing? Yeah, very uh-huh. similar. Um, uh-huh. But you, I mean, we have most of our hunts for bighorn sheep are just in the draw. So oh, I see. Oh, okay. So I'd recommend putting in for those. So fair, fair chance. Yeah, or, yeah, and you don't. You know, that's just your just, license fee and the the tag itself. I think for sheep, so for you could a, a, a resident, it's you know, I think it's less than a hundred, less than two hundred bucks. Wow, anyway, 
You yeah. could pull something big then. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. I thought that yeah. Didn't even look I didn't even look that way. Yeah. Like when somebody told me like like how expensive those hunts can be, I'm like, that sounds like that's that's out of my realm. You know? No, put in for the draw. Oh, yeah. Okay, sounds good. So I yeah. mean, you have a minuscule chance of drawing, but somebody has to draw. Somebody has to draw it. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Uh, where are we now? Oh, Barberry sheep. So Barberry mm-hmm. sheep are interesting. They're in Texas. They're. Th- did you know that they're in Hawaii? No. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the island of Niihau? You know what that is? No, I have not. So if I if there was a map, I it's off the coast of Kauai. Okay. It's a small island, um, and you have to, it's owned by the Robinson family. Um, and, uh, they, you have to either pay for a safari, pay for a, like a half day beach trip in order to go there. Like you can't just, I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to go to Niihau. They, that's a, it's a private Island. And there were some exotics introduced there. I don't know what year I want to say it was in the sixties. And I, I'm probably butchering that, but the, originally there was, um, there's Barbary sheep. There was um, eland. Mm-hmm. You know that the biggest antelope in the world, I yeah. guess. Uh, um, of course, pig sheep. There was oryx there, I believe. Um, and the, the last one died, like maybe like five, ten years ago, something like that. But there's a humongous population of Barbary mm. sheep on the cliffs out there, and they charge for um, you know they call it a safari hunt, but it's an outfitted hunt okay. for that in eland. So, um, and they why were they introduced for hunting for hunting? Okay. Yeah. Same with the Eland. Yeah. There's supposedly thousands of them out there. So, um, and it, it's not that, I mean, I don't know if anybody would you know want to look into it, but it's not that super duper expensive for mm-hmm. getting a helicopter ride over to a special Island and mm-hmm. hunting in Hawaii. I mean, it sounds amazing and it is, but, um, they, it seems like they do really well on cliffs out there, but here it's more desert. They're more in the desert or are they more in the mountains as well or a combination? Yeah, that I would say a combo of the desert and mountain landscapes, like outside of Alamogordo, if you can picture sort of like a desert mountain, right? Like it's kind of rugged and steep, but Mm. there's cactuses and desert type plants. Like that's kind of what I would normally picture them being in. That being said, they show up in a lot of other places too, like in the flats and yeah. Yeah. They could just pop up and then, oh, there's a, there's a sheep, barbary sheep. Mm -hmm. There's a. Uh, Owl dad. Right. So how you'd say it. Um, you know, the fact that you mentioned like those dry areas, the, the kind of deserty areas, wouldn't seem like there's a lot of water for them or anybody else really mm-hmm. in, in parts of New Mexico where you, you'd see like pronghorn and stuff like, wow, where, where's the water coming from? Do you, does the state put water out there or like, or, or is it, they just get it from the, the vegetation or. Ah, uh, they, they'll get it from. You know, like some of these mountain ranges that are, you know, rocky will occasionally get like a big rainfall and there'll be little Tanaha. So it's like a like a rock um, pool. Right. Mm. So like a. I don't know, a rock basin that will hold water. Like there's kind of a lot of those actually when you go walking around on some of these desert mountains. Really? Tanaha. Tanaha. Is that a native word? It's I think so. It sounds like it's Tanaha. Okay. But um, yeah, so there's those there's. The state does work with like federal agencies, BLM, Forest Service, and maybe even state land office to uh, put water out for wildlife in particular. Mm-hmm. The other place that wildlife will get it is, you know, there's cattle on the landscape. And so wildlife will use cattle or livestock water also. Mm-hmm. So 
the I think water distribution across the state is is pretty good. Oh, my understanding. Okay. okay I mean, good. yeah, there's not places that we would expect to see animals that, you know, we don't see them because there's not water. So I see. I, yeah. For the untrained eye, it just seems like, oh, what, what lives out here? You yeah. Know, like it's so dry, you know? The other thing is like these animals evolved in this landscape, right? Like they've been here longer, a lot longer than <laughs> a lot, a lot we longer have. Than us. No, so like, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. And, yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. Um, Barbara, she... Where? Pronghorn. Oh, pronghorn. Yeah. So pronghorn are interesting in that they're the only real native species to the Americas. Mm -hmm. Is that true? or Because um, you don't find them anywhere else. Yeah, no, they, they don't have another ancestor. Yeah, they, you know, they, they have, I'm sure you've heard that they are the fastest land mammal in America. Yeah. Yeah, um, upwards of, I mean, faster 60. than a cheetah or close to yeah. that, that of a cheetah's speed. Right. That's a remnant of having an old, like a predator back in the day that was, yeah, like a cheetah that could out, that could run them down. I see. Um, but they just have kept that kept adaptation. That. They yeah. call, they actually call them speed goats too, right? Mm -hmm. now, yeah. now, what are they? They're, are they? yeah, they're their are own they thing. They're not a no, goat. No, they're not a goat. They're, they're, not, they're not related to goats. They're, they're not an elk. They're not no. a deer. They're they're just their own. Their own thing. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Closely related to what? Nothing? What is their... I, I looked this up recently and I forget. We have a pronghorn biologist. We, I'll ask him when we leave. Not that it's going to make a difference, but... Yeah, no. I'd love to know <laughs> yeah. that because I always look at them. They don't seem like an attractive... This is me. You know, this is my... Uh, um, own like opinion on it, but I've never really seen them as like this attractive game animal because they, they're not, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like they're that vocal. Mm -hmm. Their mating strategies anyway, aren't, uh, uh, as advertised as an elk or mm -hmm. deer or any other animal for that matter. Maybe I just don't know. Um, they're, they're interesting looking, mm -hmm. you know, their their meat, from what I understand, is not super duper highly coveted, although the meat I've heard is good. Uh, so it seems to me it's like not super duper attractive as yeah. far as an animal to hunt. Or, or I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've seen a lot of people hunt them. Yeah. But I've just it's just never like really appealed to me. Like, what's what's the deal? What's the deal there? I don't. I mean, I've heard people say they don't like the game, the 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 meat, and other people say they really love it. I think a lot of times they're killed in, you know, like August timeframe when it's still hot outside. So maybe there's some, I don't know if they don't get cooled down quick enough. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. I've, I've not hunted pronghorn, but they're, yeah, they're, I think they're pretty popular to hunt. For, Are they? Mm -hmm, yeah. 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 I think so too. Like as far as other people, other hunters, I just don't see them as that that they that they have that mystique or that like yeah. that history that like elk or a big like you know buck mule deer buck out there that that kind of draw that that has to big game hunters yeah does that make sense yeah no I I think I yeah I kind of get what you're saying like their land the landscape that they live on is open plains yeah and so you kind of have a hard time getting super close to them yeah um, maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe part of it is it's not a mountain hunt necessarily and maybe not as coveted for that reason. Yeah, but yeah, true. That's yeah. true. It's kind of like a plains thing where right. you can kind of drive up and like glass on the plane and like almost yeah. like a like a buffalo plane type thing. Yeah. 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 We, we have New Mexico has the um, as far as like 
big pronghorn or, or trophies, right? Or older males. We have, New Mexico has the record Boone and Crockett pronghorn. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're really advertising today. <laughs> you have a, you're advertising your white tails and your Boone and Crockett's up there. And, well, oh, part that. of the reason is I just became an official measure for Boone and Crockett. And oh, so, did you? yeah, that's like at the forefront of my mind. Oh, okay. So. I got you. It's like all yeah. these, oh, this is a real trophy type of situation here. Um, no, that's cool. I didn't know that. I, I had no idea. I, I, and again, this is just me, my opinion. Just They just don't like even that they're racks, if you'd call yeah. That or horns or whatever, just they. This just doesn't seem so attractive, but yeah. I, don't know, I might change my mind on that. Who knows? Yeah, um, interesting thing about trophies, though. Like, I feel I don't know if you've done a podcast on trophy animals or talk to them extent talk to anybody about them, but Mm-mm. you know, I think that they're in social media. Maybe it gets a bit of a bad rap because oh, somebody just wants to put those antlers or horns on their wall, and they're just looking for something to brag about. But when you talk about like the actual biology of, of getting an animal to a place where it can produce a big set of antlers or horns, like that requires a lot of good management, good forage resources on the landscape, not a high density of animals so that it can have enough resources to get those big antlers. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of steps that need to be taken to get an animal to that trophy quality. Mm-hmm. And so I think it gets a little bit of a bad rap, not, I don't know, maybe it's a little founded. People don't really like the idea of killing something just so you can put it on your wall. Mm-hmm. But at the same time to get it to that place, that means that's a healthy landscape. Yeah. Too. Oh, that's good point. Cause I've always put it like, especially with the PETA conversation, I've always said that we as hunters, something you might not understand uh, Clayton, that's his name, or pe- people who don't kill animals or PETA, something you, you may not understand, but hunters for the most part are trying to find the most mature animal to take off the landscape because they've lived there the majority of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen many uh, hunters that will look at the teeth and be like, oh, we did good, like this, the, and look at the teeth and say, I was missing all his teeth, and he's yeah. he's really at, at the end of his life cycle, and he's lived a good life and passed on his genes, yeah. and it's time to, to, to pull him out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's... I, that's what I normally keyed on, but I don't. I didn't really think about that. It does it does say a lot about the landscape and the management to be like, oh wow, this is a you know this is a healthy area if you can if you can pull an animal like this off this mm-hmm. landscape. It says a lot about your elk in particular and your and your mule deer in the northern part of the state anyway. Yeah. And of course, to your point, the pronghorn, yeah, yeah. and now the whitetail. Like as well like what else we got i'm sure am i just a, am I'm i sure. just like a billboard for it's, new, Mac- it's, new mexico it certainly sounds like it yeah you might have some hunters that might be upset with you uh new mexico hunters anyway um and then i've also seen i'll you, i'll chime in on this when i'm when i was looking up ibex i've seen some massive like billies oh, yeah. some massive out i was like look at that that looks like that thing should be in the alps somewhere mm-hmm. you know i mean you have some like trophy yeah ibex out there correct yeah for sure yeah some big ones and you manage that well because it's that's a once in a lifetime as well you for can't... yeah for the any legal sporting arm hunt for either sex yeah so not every ibex is a once in a lifetime but i yeah. see i see but but the billies mm-hmm. but yeah. Well, the billies for any legal sporting arm. 
So oh, there's okay, like an gotcha, archery gotcha. tag. Archery tag right. you can draw again. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, did we miss anything as far as the, the 10 game ones? I'm anything? not thinking of anything else. It, it doesn't it sound like you're, that you're hurting at no, all in no. any in any way. You're like, the management's going really well and it sounds like, you know, the animals are healthy. Yeah. I mean, th- there's always improvements that can be made. Like, for example, deer, mule deer in general across the Western U.S., aren't quite at a population level on that large landscape that they had been maybe in the the eighties or seventies. Um, and so people will often key in on key in on that and say, well, you need to be doing more for mule deer. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, like we, we've made these as humans, these big landscape scale changes, like in the seventies and eighties when mule deer were doing good, our country had just finished, you know, having a campaign to kill a lot of predators, Mm -hmm. right? Perhaps allowing mule deer to take advantage of not having no predators on the landscape. Yeah. The landscape has changed as well with more people moving into places that deer want to be. So uh, yeah, I don't want to sound like we're all doing great and there's nothing that we can do better for wildlife. Like we certainly could. Um, And some interesting work that's coming out on mule deer lately is, is putting GPS collars on them and looking at where they move mm. like migratory routes. I don't know if you've delved into any of this, but like, you know, if, if a deer it's there, they sort of like teach their young to do it. And it's sort of like a learned behavior, like how to migrate mm. and where to go back. You know, they use the same route year after year after year. If that knowledge is lost, it's a little unclear to us as biologists, like how that's going to continue. I see. If, you know, for some reason a population crashes or that migratory route gets severed. Um, so I think like some of the more recent research that's coming out for mule deer is identifying those movement pathways and elk and pronghorn also. Mm -hmm. Um, but for mule deer in particular, they seem to be like some of their movements are like, they're amazing how far they can travel. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I've looked into like that mule, the the Wyoming mule deer migration is, I mean, it's dizzying to, to to think that they move that far in a, in one season, right? You know, right. And so I'm, um, uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned mule deer because there are people who I've talked to that you know hunters out there. I'm sure you talk to a ton of hunters too, but there's a there, especially people who know that I've started the podcast. You should ask them about what they're going to do about these uh, not mule deer, but just deer in general. Mm-hmm. I was like, we, what, what is it? He's like, well, not, we're not seeing like, mm-hmm. and these are elderly folks. We're not seeing the deer that we used to when we were young, you know, like yeah. we used to come out in this field and in the evening and there's deer out here the year after year after year, we've seen a decline in, you know, certain things. And I go, well, I talked to them. They're, they're, approachable you know mm-hmm. and, and i've always said even Oren and travis they're they've been great as far as like what you know you know taking calls or whatever from people or people who are concerned about certain things because i'm sure that that's one of your big uh parts of management is listening to the public right yeah, and sure. seeing what what's going on and investigating like what what do you mean by that you know yeah um so yeah i do hear that as far as deer concerned i'm I'm not sure so much about elk but i do hear about especially mule deer but these also are guys that or or hunters that have they they're clearly like rack hunters like they Mm -hmm. they're looking for like big class like trophy class mule deer and they're like yeah they're just not around like they used to be yeah 
Yeah. Anything, anything you could say to that as far as trophy class, especially in that, and I'm talking more in that Northern part too, like you were saying, like I've, my efforts are around that 5B area this year. So I've talked to a bunch of people in that area. I drive out there and I scout, stop at the little, you know, convenience stores out there. And they're like, yeah, it's not like it used to be, man. It's going to be tough for you Mm -hmm. and this and that. And I'm like, why is that? And they're like, well, we don't know. Why don't you ask the people you're talking to, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a combination of things. I'm not sure, you know, that that I think that's probably a migratory population. When you talk to Hickory, yeah, you should ask them. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they have, I think they have data on um, GPS collar data on animals migrating on and off the reservation and even mm. into Colorado. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the fact of mule deer declining in the West is a thing. It's just a thing. Yeah. Like why they, is that? It's what's going on it's, there. It's just a, it, I, you know, I think it's a combination of things. Like we talked about earlier elk being a generalist, like they can eat a lot of things. Uh, deer can't really. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that, that we've done as people is we've kind of stopped um, wildfires. And so wildfires, like last year we had that big burn up in the Pecos, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. I was just out there yesterday for, um, like new growth. There's a bunch of aspens. There's a bunch of green coming up That's out great. of the burn. Uh-huh. Um, and, and deer can really thrive on, on that. But we as, as humans have stopped fires because, you know, they get close to our communities and that's also devastating. So yeah. we've stopped fires, but fire was a historic na- natural part of the landscape here for, I don't know how long millennia probably. Mm. Um, and so we stopped that. Like we've just made some changes as humans on the landscape that I guess are not really conducive to having a super high deer population. I see. Yeah. So it's not, it's like a thousand cuts, right? It's not totally. like one thing. No, totally. Yeah. And you're right. Just like you mentioned earlier, you know, we, the, one of the big reasons why we manage or we need to manage is because we've made so many of like, we've, we've used certain, we've taken landscape away and now are they going around? Are they still trying to go through? Like, how are they migrating? And, mm-hmm. you know, like that's probably uh, definitely has like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of stressors on on how they're living and how they're migrating and their population. So those are those are all good points there. So, yeah, you're right. It's probably not just one thing. It's probably, yeah. it's probably a ton of stuff. The whole fire thing is really interesting. I would have never and until I started hunting, I didn't realize how important fire actually was mm-hmm. to uh to un- or to animals to ungulates especially right yeah, yeah yeah it's that new growth that they like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then the, of course the sun hitting the ground and that kind of thing right. and the nutrients and that what would you say um what would you say to like um how would you educate the the hunting public on things that you from knowing what you've known getting your phd and then being in, in in such close contact with a lot of hunters, what would you say to like a hunter who um, maybe like misunderstands things? Like if you, um, to be more specific, um, what have you seen in hunters where you're like, you're like, why they, uh, hunters always think this. Why do they think this? It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's like this. It's like they need to understand this more. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, th- I think I, I think I kind of understand the question. Yeah. So what, Something that I regularly hear is, oh, the the population, whatever, elk, deer, whatever, this population isn't doing as good because I don't, I used to see them in this place year after year and now I don't see mm-hmm. them as much any, anymore. 
but so when we assess, when we quantify the population, when we do helicopter surveys or hunter harvest surveys, like you have to fill one of those out. If you have a tag, Mm. those are super valuable for us. So like we don't look in the same place year after year for the animals. Like they can move to different places or, Mm -hmm. um, maybe they, I don't know, maybe something changed about that part of wherever you used to see them and they're no, no longer there, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that on a large scale they're suffering necessarily. So when we do surveys, hunter harvests, um, questionnaires, Mm -hmm. we're sort of getting at how the population is doing on a larger landscape scale. Mm -hmm. So while maybe you aren't seeing them at your neighbor's house as much or your neighbor's property, that doesn't mean they're having a hard time or no longer there. Mm. Like it's possible. It's possible. Sure. sure, Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, I think that when we look at the scale, when we like scale up and look at a bigger landscape, um, yeah, that, that's something that, you know, I I think I, I find hard too. like when you, when you just go out and you see an animal or like a a group of animals in the same place year after year and all of a sudden you don't see them. You're like, well, what is what's wrong and what's going on? But Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I guess the scale of things is something that I have a hard time explaining to hunters. Yeah, they could have moved. Like you, you're constantly seeing a certain area. You obviously don't have a helicopter, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. I'm sure you're thinking those some of those thoughts. Sure. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do. Because there's a there's a uh, obviously like a disconnect, you know, yeah. in, in some, certain uh, uh, certain things where I I'm listening to a hunter that's lived in this certain area for his whole, his or her life. And then, then listening to a a wildlife biologist and like, no man, they got it wrong or they got this They, You know, I've told them to come out here. They don't come out here. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've heard that too. I called them to come out and yeah, yeah, there was, (laughs) there was this guy, uh, again in that five B area and he's actually, uh, like a retired outfitter. Okay. And, uh, I don't say his name or anything, but he said, yeah, like we were driving around the truck, we were scouting, uh, that five B area. And he was like, yeah. And he was telling me about like this elk just walked up to our truck, obviously was sick. Something's wrong with mm-hmm. it. Like they don't do that. Like a big old bull just walks up to our truck and looking at us it's like something's wrong with that elk. He said, uh, we called fish and game to come out and look at it. They never came. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened to them. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. This is the way he was talking about yeah. it. He was like, they don't, you know, I mean, everybody has their opinions, right? Oh yeah. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. He's like, I've, I've never seen them out here. You know, yeah. <laughs> like that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. So pretty interesting. Um, anything else? Where are we at? We're at, uh, know where we're at like i think an hour and 40 minutes here yeah it's a it's about 11 we should probably wrap up yeah so uh anything else you want in closing do you want to uh you know tell the yeah you know what's really interesting about this uh podcast it's you know and we did talk about like your podcast that you do here with the state um i don't know how it's viewed for the the general public but I was, I was telling you how I thought about it. Like, I, it's great for information, like listening to you talk, mm-hmm. you know, with Darren and, on your uh, podcast. And it was cool. Yeah, there's a lot of cool information and stuff like that. But um, I'm just full disclosure. I reached out to wolf biologist um, uh, Nick. Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nick and Rizzo. Yeah. Yeah. And then talk to his boss. And we're trying to get that one done. That would be a good one. That would be a great one. But there's also there's this resistance when it comes to the predator stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, Baron Cougar uh, gentleman, he wanted to do it too. And then they wanted to do that one in-house. 
Yeah. Which I completely understand. I get it because it can be kind of, kind of a contentious issue. Yeah. Um, because especially for hunters, you know, I don't know like what a lot of hunters think, but everybody's got their opinions on reintroduction and, you know, managing predators differently if all you're interested in doing is hunting deer and elk and that yeah. kind of thing. So there's there's different ways uh, that people think and a little bit more, I'd say a little bit more contentious on that end. But um, I would love to talk to both of them, you know, but what I was going to say about this is that this is really cool in that I feel like the from an objective view and look, and you and I talked about podcasts before when I look for a podcast and I see that the state has done it, not that I'm not going to listen to it, I'm going to listen to it, but I also feel like there's a message that the state is trying to get you to the public to see. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then more of like, uh, like a general pod podcast. And again, thank you for doing this because you know, this is putting yourself out there and being vulnerable to like these questions. We had like a core of questions. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if we got to them. Like, I, I don't have them. I don't, I don't, exactly. Yeah. So it was like, it's brave of you to like come out and just say, yeah, ask me anything. It's sure. cool. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's talk. Yeah. I think it makes the conversation flow too. And I don't yeah. know. Yeah. No, it's great. And so I don't even I know where I was getting with that, but I, that's, I wanted to compliment you on that and thank you for um, allowing me to just kind of off the cuff ask you all these questions and you, yeah, no you've problem. been really great about it. So has Travis and so has Oren. And Thanks just, for being a great host. Of what? That Really? Yeah, Thanks. yeah, no, you're easy to talk to. Thanks. And, that's, yeah. that's so nice of you to say that. That's, you know, I don't get compliments very often. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you though. That's, that's great. Um, and I wanted to thank Oren too. I, I haven't talked to him, but man, he was, he's the one that really started all this. Like he, when I hadn't even had a podcast yet, he agreed to do my first one, yeah. which was like, really? I didn't say it to him, but I was like, yeah, yeah. I acted all professional, like, yeah, I'll be there and this and that. And I was yeah. thinking to myself as soon as I hung up, I'm like, holy crap, he agreed <laughs> to do my first one. <laughs> yes. Oren's great. Yeah, he was really cool about it too. So, but but yeah, thank you so much for um, for everything. And like, I, I, I hope, I, I got a lot of great information from it and I hope a lot of people did too. Um, and anything else, like I was going to ask you, I cut you off, but anything else you'd like the public to know, just, you know, just plainly about New Mexico and, um, big game. Cause you have a big job and there's a lot that you're doing and a lot that you're seeing. So anything that you want to disclose to the public? Um, I, I guess just thanking people for reaching out to us, calling us on concerns, like, filling out your hunter harvest reports that data i, I can't actually tell you how important that data is like if we if there's not a way for us to survey a population let's say like i don't know a certain area is just not conducive to a helicopter survey because there's so many trees we just can't see through the trees right we can't see the animals on the ground but we can use hunter harvest data that people give us um, in the form of how many days did you hunt? Did you, what would you like score your hunt in a, on a one to five scale? Like those things mm. actually are indicators of the population. And, and we've actually proven that by looking at like comparing it to when we do helicopter surveys and we know how a population is doing like that data, it tracks in the same way. So if the population is increasing, all of those metrics are trending in a certain direction, right? Like hunters rank their, they have a great hunt and they, they rate it high. They don't, they spend, you know, less days in the field. So that's mm. like an index to us on how the population is doing and really, really valuable. So mm. I guess I'd like to thank people for doing that. 
Yeah, so. thank thank you for saying that because I didn't realize it was that. I mean, I knew it was important, but I didn't realize it was that important and that yeah. you guys leaned on it that much. No, we do. Yeah, that's, that's great to know. So if you're out there and you you're you're teetering on whether to do that, I think it's a requirement it's now. It's mandatory. <laughs> I mean, oh. like I'm thanking people for doing something, something they have manda- to do. Mandatory. But I d- I guess I do want to say it is. We really do use that. It's yeah, valuable. Yeah. Don't think that you're just wasting time and having to do that. So no, that's good because I I certainly was like, you know. I need to be more, uh, I don't know. I, I, I swear I don't remember doing it, but I had to have in order yeah, to renew. Yeah, if you, if you reapply, like when the That's draw right. opens oh, again, it'll make you do it. It oh, might yeah, give yeah. you like a late fee or something, but... There was a it's flag. Have to make you do yeah, it. There yeah, there was a flag. And I was like, what is this? How's this? Important? And that's fine. Even if it's, yeah, I like, we won't look at the data until after the new draw. So uh, even if you're late, quote unquote, late getting it in, it's, it's totally fine. No, oh, that's awesome. We'll awesome. Still, we still use that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, hey, thank you again. Yeah, um, thank you. This has been really productive and really awesome. And I appreciate your time today. And uh, yeah, put in a good word for me for the predator guys All or, right. and gals. We'll do. And uh, oh, one more thing before we go, I wanted you and I, and I not just because you're a woman, okay, but I do want to wanted to touch on one more thing as far sure. as like women in the field of hunting and um, you know not just wildlife biology because there's a ton of wildlife biologists that are women out mm-hmm. there. Just your quick opinion on and or any comments you may have on being. Uh, a, a lady hunter? Um, I guess they're, they're not as many female hunters, at least big game hunters mm-hmm. as, as I see male hunters, but um, it seems to be something that more females are getting interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a bit of a learning curve as you know, Yeah. <clears throat> not growing up as a hunter, mm-hmm. um, any coming, any learning anything new as an adult is a little challenging, but mm-hmm. Um, I think people are doing it more. It seems like the the group of people that it's doing it are interested in like the food aspect and getting food, you know, to put on their plate or share with their family. Mm-hmm. It seems like maybe the female segment of hunters, that's kind of what they're interested in mm-hmm. more so than, I don't know, antlers or something. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, Lisa Feener. Um, the, I think I mentioned her, she's the, um, she hunts, uh, bears with, with hounds in Maine. Mm-hmm. When I mentioned that to her, she's like, why do we even have to talk about that? Like, you know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. I don't mean it in that way. Yeah. It, the only reason why I mentioned it, cause I don't see a lot of women out there. Yeah. I would love to see an equal of yeah. like men and women out there. And I do feel like there's not an, an understanding, like s- women sometimes don't understand it or they see a burly guy spitting chew and like, yeah. uh, like in a, in a camo outfit and, you know, out with his guns and do- doesn't feel like it's, or feels like it's more of a masculine thing yeah. and doesn't see it as an equal. So I would love to see more women out there doing it. Cause I feel like it's not a, it's not a man's sport. Right. I, I, I could be wrong in saying that. I don't know, but it's just some guys listening, but I don't see it like that. I, especially me being out there now, like, and not knowing anything about it before it's illuminated this whole different you know, uh, place in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think it could do that for a lot of women too, by being outdoors and harvesting your own meat and getting that understanding, like you said about, you know, putting food on the table and that, and that. So, so yeah, if Lisa's listening, she's she's going to cringe that I even brought it up. (laughs) Why did he have to say that? But, but, but I just, yeah, it's, you, you see where I'm getting. I do. Yeah. And I I don't love talking about it either. Like it's not, (laughs) it's not an, yeah, I don't know, but, but yeah, I think it, 
if you don't see here's like my my friend has has young girls and she's like Nicole like if they don't see their like somebody that looks like them doing things that they might want to do they're not even going to consider doing it right so like if you don't see people I don't know she was referring to like a science background right like mm. if they don't see I don't know women being nuclear scientists like then they're not even really going to consider that. And that's talking about younger kids. And I, I don't have kids, so I, yeah. I, I may be stepping out of my my lane here a little bit, but maybe there's a little bit of that. Like you just don't see somebody that's like you doing that thing. So, yeah. well, then it's just not for you. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, and that's uh, that's normal to, to be like that. You look at a man looking at doing something like, I don't say like knitting or anything, sure. but doing something like men don't do that, mm -hmm. you know, but actually I'm sure they do. You yeah. know what I mean? Or they do, you know, certain people do things that you don't think, you know, for their, for their gender. But I just would love to see more women out there. That's why I mention it. Yeah. And that's why I kind of, I had to explain it to her after I was like, yeah, I'm not trying to drive you crazy. I'm just trying to yeah. tell you, like, I just would like to see more women out there. I think it's cool, you know? Yeah. So. Well, but. a tidbit about, so my, my husband lived and worked in Mongolia for a little while. Oh. And he said some of like the historic herding and hunting communities like they would, they would have specific, like a hunting crew go out and it would be one man and one woman. Like that was always who they would send out. So it was Why? like equal. I don't exactly know the, the reason behind it, but that was like, I don't know their tradition or maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I wonder what they that, bring different things should to ask the table him about there. that. Like yeah. what that, what, if there was a reason for that. Yeah. Cause I, I think that's cool. You know, I would love to, if, you know, if I, if I was married, I'd love to have my wife out there. Not mm -hmm. that you, I need to, right. You know, of course it's, a, you talk to couples and it's sometimes it's like, okay, I'm, I'm happy that I have my week to get away and she yeah. has her week or whatever. But how cool is that when you go with your husband and you're glassing, I'm sure you guys are talking about cool stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, this is cool, hon. You know, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, but anyway, Nicole, thanks again. This has Thank been you. awesome. And hopefully we, I don't know. Hopefully we get to do it again. Sounds good. Okay, awesome.